everyone. This is Alicia Halliday. Welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. If you're involved with the autism community at all, have been to an autism meeting, a walk, are on Facebook, or even just rode the New York City subway, you've heard about SPARC. SPARC stands for Simons Foundation Powering Autism Research for Knowledge, and it's a project funded, of course, by the Simons Foundation to enroll at least 50,000 families with at least one person on the autism spectrum. The goal is to collect enough information on an online registry and DNA obtained through SPIT to make meaningful comparisons and identify as many autism genes as possible in order to better identify different subgroups and different genetic causes of not just autism, but autism combined with other psychiatric issues. The original idea of an online registry came from the Interactive Autism Network, or Ian. Some of you may have been a part of that. Ian didn't really collect DNA on a large scale, however, and also the Interactive Autism Registry has now merged into Spark. Many of you may also already be a part of Spark, which is why I thought it was so important to share some of the early findings with you. If you haven't participated in Spark yet, here is scientific evidence on why it is helping families. If you already have participated, you more than anyone are entitled to understand what the earliest sets of results are saying. Because it's a DNA registry, Spark does do something others don't, which is to provide feedback on the results to those who request it in the form of a clinical report. I also want to just disclose that my family is a part of Spark, but we joined late enough that I'm sure that the results from this study were not included. Yours may not be either if you're a recent participant. Many people have joined just since this analysis was done, and that's fine. There are going to be many, many more exciting findings from this study. Anyway, one of the reasons for creating this resource was that genetic studies in autism are seriously underpowered. Underpowered means they're too small to be able to detect differences that are there. Just a few years ago was actually the perfect time to launch Spark. And this study sequences the DNA of families who are enrolled. So the combination of the opportunity plus lots of families being interested in research plus the availability of DNA to be sequenced made a few years ago the best time to launch this. If you're not part of SPARC but have participated in another genetic studies, you're still welcome to join SPARC. There's something called a GUID, and this is a unique identifying number, which means you're not double counted in one analysis or another. When you join, or if you already joined, you set up and link your existing GUID to your Spark profile. I also don't want to forget to mention the project is collecting data on autism symptoms, medical information, and comorbidities, as well as existing genetic diagnoses. Without getting involved in the maneuverings of Spark and getting that part wrong, let's just go ahead and move to the results of this new study. The first analysis of Spark families included 457 of these families, with one or more people having a professional diagnosis of autism. But really, most of them had only one person in the family affected. 25% also had an intellectual disability. In essence, the results were that they found that there were genetic findings worthy of note in about 10% of families. This is a higher number than previously identified. You may not be surprised that the families most likely to get a notable result were those with seizures or an intellectual disability. 
That doesn't mean everyone with seizures or an intellectual debility had a notable genetic result, but it was more common than those without seizures and intellectual disability. And it also means that some people without seizures or intellectual disability also had notable genetic findings. So what were these notable genetic findings? I actually turned to Pam Feliciano, who directs Spark and is a geneticist and also a mother of a son with autism herself, to decipher what the study said. We conducted this pilot study so we could be sure that all the pieces were operational, from the website to the saliva collection to the genomic analysis and to the return of genetic results. By conducting this pilot study, we were able to scale Spark up to the size that it is now. Using our online platform, we were able to show that the genetic architecture of autism in these families is similar to published, clinically ascertained cohorts. We found evidence for several new autism risk genes and that the function of these genes is similar to already known autism genes. So what should families know about these results? Overall, we found a genetic finding related to autism in 10% of families. With more data, that number will increase as we discover more autism genes. Now, how do I join Spark? Pam, please tell us. Our understanding of the genetic basis of autism is growing quickly. Families can join Spark to help accelerate that even faster. They may even learn about a genetic finding in their own family, which can be helpful in understanding their condition. If you have a family member with a genetic difference in an autism risk gene, you can check out our list of autism genes here on our website. You can join Simon Searchlight too. We'll help connect you to families like your own and let you know about possible research opportunities on your gene. Researchers and families can learn much more by working together. I want to add that one new gene was identified, but the findings mostly reiterated the existence of what was already known about the genomes of people with autism. This is probably because of the ability to actually sequence DNA rather than just pull from various sites in DNA to look at particular mutations. So this study used something called a whole exome sequencing, which looks at the sequencing of regions of the genome that code proteins. Scientists, or at least some scientists, have argued that this is where the most action is, not just in autism, but across neuropsychiatric disorders. However, another study recently published found that using whole genome data, which is what it sounds, the entire genome was sequenced, including the exome regions, but also non-coding regions. Now, these non-coding regions are regions of the genome that scientists thought used to be junk, but now scientists know it's as important. As I mentioned earlier, the SPARC study, for the most part, included families with one affected family member. Now, this other study included those with more than one family member. They reported almost a dozen newly discovered genes in their data set. Those came from a variety called rare inherited, which means they come from somewhere from one parent. Maybe the parent doesn't have an ASD phenotype, but does carry a gene mutation and it's passed along where together with the other set of DNA and other DNA mutations leads to autism. The fact that this study found more genes than the SPARC study could be because of two things. One, they used a different sequencing technology, and two, they used a different group. More family members may mean more mutations. In fact, those with only one family member seem to have more de novo mutations, that is, not seen in either parent, and those with more than one family member are likely to show the rare inherited mutations. Now, 
Now, that is not an absolute rule, and it's not something that defines the genetic architecture of autism, but it just seems to be something interesting of note. One interesting thing about this other article, the whole genome sequencing one, is that they saw an effect on a gene called DLG2. DLG2 is on that non-coding region I mentioned earlier that used to be considered garbage in the DNA. So it wouldn't have been found in the original SPARC study. DLG2 is a part of a family of genes, and another one of this family of genes was implicated as being shown to be susceptible to changes in expression through chronic cannabis use. Before anyone goes there, I want to make sure that you understand that this does not give specific evidence that cannabis helps or causes autism. It means that it might be affected by this gene. And also, again, these findings kind of give rise to the idea that environmental factors affect gene expression of genes related to autism. We need to be doing more to study gene-environment interactions, especially on the epigenome. Well, it's not entirely surprising because DLG proteins are affected by our own endocannabinoid system. Yes, we have a chemical system responsive to cannabis. I just wanted to mention this because it's interesting to wake you stoners up and get you listening to the podcast again. Thank you for listening this week. I hope I provided some interesting tidbits about new genetic findings in autism, and I hope to talk to you next week.